In the new movie, The Two Popes, there's this wonderful scene where Pope Benedict is talking to who was then Cardinal Bergoglio, who eventually becomes Pope Francis. And they're meeting at the Vatican. The two men are in this anteroom, sort of at the back of the Sistine Chapel. And they're having this deep theological and emotional discussion about the possibility of the Pope resigning something that had never been done in 700 years. It just, it just wasn't historically something that was ever done. In fact, it really hit home in this cute little poignant moment when the Pope tells the Cardinal, I'm going to resign, and the Cardinal, who eventually will become his successor, the Pope, pauses and he looks at him and he says, resign from what? It's like he can't even fathom it. He has no idea what the Pope is even talking about. So anyway, they're having this big discussion, this conversation, and, and suddenly Cardinal Bergoglio says, I'm hungry. Are you hungry? And Pope Benedict says, yes, let me call someone to make us some food, and he'll bring it in. And I love this. The Cardinal says, no, 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 no. I know a place. And he picks up his phone, and he orders them pizza. <laughs> And so the two popes sit and eat their pizza and drink their orange soda at the back of the Sistine Chapel with thousands of tourists just on the other side of this door. If you haven't seen this movie, it really is a delightful film. And much of it is true, but I'm sure much of it is made for movies. But I tell you this story because it's the kind of event that might make you say, he's a salt of the earth kind of guy, you know? In fact, I think that that term probably ap applies to Pope Francis for a variety of reasons, because remember, this is the man who, when he was named Pope that very day, walked back to his hotel to pay the bill and thank the hotel staff, who I'm sure at that point were just stunned and thought, okay, it's on the house. <laughs> Salt of the earth. We all understand sort of innately what it means to be salt of the earth, and I'm sure you've described people in your lifetime before using that phrase. It describes somebody who's noble or hardworking, someone who's honest and worthy of our admiration, just down to earth. But I bet many of you didn't realize all these years that you were quoting Jesus. Now, there are a lot of reasons that I think Jesus used this particular phrase. People have talked about a number of reasons that he might have, which you heard this morning in our reading. Salt was used, of course, to flavor food. It was used as uh, a seasoning for incense during worship. It was used to preserve food. It was even added to certain offerings in the temple. Some people have even suggested that because salt cost a lot of money, that people used to get paid with salt. And so maybe Jesus was referencing the worth of something. But I tend to think that Jesus' turn of phrase here was pretty simple. If salt loses its flavor, it isn't any good. Plain and simple. You are the salt of the earth. Pay attention that you don't lose your flavor, Jesus says. 
And he continues, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Why? So that people will see your good works and give glory to God. You see, once we choose to follow Jesus, we have a responsibility. Don't just follow. Go out and be an example. We are called to change lives by reflecting the light and the life of Jesus. Now, you may remember the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah tells the story and addresses some of the challenges of the Jewish people during and after and even leading up to the exile. And the prophets, remember, were not fortune tellers. They weren't some sort of soothsayers. They were, as one of my favorite writers puts it, social critics sounding the alarm. The prophets were social and ethical conscience of the nation. So the people of Israel had begun following God, of course, but through a series of unfortunate kings who were with God and then not, with God and then not, things seemed to get a little bit out of whack for the nation. After a couple of thousand years or so, the original covenant made with Abraham and Moses was just writing on a stone. It didn't seem to really mean anything, and eventually the kingdom of Israel was conquered, and the people were forcibly taken to Babylon, and their house of worship was destroyed. But after 50 years of exile there, God released the Jews. They headed back to the promised land, and it looked like things were finally going to improve, but they continue on this trajectory of drawing near to God and then pulling away, drawing near to God and then pulling away. And the nation finds themselves nearly right back where they started, entirely focused on the wrong things and fearing that God had abandoned them. And so by the 58th chapter of Isaiah, this is what we hear God saying. He says specifically to Isaiah, shout out to them. Don't hold back. Tell them everything they have done to sin against me. And then God says, day after day, they seek me out. They seem to be eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. As if they were a nation that does what's right. God goes on to say, they say to me, look, we're fasting. We've humbled ourselves. Why do you not notice that? People seem to believe they're doing all the right things and that it is God who is not keeping up God's end of the bargain. They are genuinely confused because they think that by acting in religious ways, by fasting and sacrificing, these are things they'd always done as God's followers. They were doing what they believed was necessary. How could God then not be pleased? But what God says next disrupts their comfy lifestyle and their religious observance. And it's important to note that what God says here is nothing new. This is the message of God to God's people throughout history. But through Isaiah, God is giving this a renewed importance. And here's what he says. Your fasting, your fasting is not at all the kind of worship I want. 
here's what I want from my people. Break the chains of injustice. Get rid of exploitation in the workplace. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless into your homes, putting clothes on those who have none, being available to your own families. This is your true worship. It's readings like this that just sort of reach out through the centuries and grab me by my heart. It's as though God is saying to Christian churches today, we've had enough of you putting on your Sunday best once a week at most, but never lifting a finger to change the world. Enough of single issues and finger pointing and self-righteous piety. God says the fasting I need is not a a few days a year where you walk around and refrain from eating but look morose and irritable. No, the fast I choose, God says in Isaiah, is a fast from domination, from blaming others, from evil speech, from self-satisfaction or entitlement or blindness to your own privilege. It's a fast that calls for generosity and compassion and justice-seeking, and peacemaking. It's too easy to think that if we perform holy acts, we will be holy. Or if we condemn others for their wrongdoing, then we are doing God's work. But what we are called to is a life of serving others. This done in the name of God, in partnership with God, cooperating with God. This is what makes us holy. We live in an incredible world. I mean, to be born in this age with all the bounty and privilege that we have, good medicine, free education, warm houses, we can travel anywhere we want to go, clean water, beautiful scenery, it is a spectacular world. And worship is an appropriate response to the gift of this great life. We should praise and thank God for all we have. But Isaiah takes it further. Isaiah says our response should be to give back, to serve. In fact, another Old Testament prophet, Micah, wrote these familiar words, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That's what is required of us, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. One of the primary ways we serve God is by serving others by putting love into action with kindness and mercy and justice. God does not ask us to condemn people or to shun them or to publicly shame them. God never once commanded us to gloating. God has always made it clear that our lives cannot solely be about number one. A life well lived is one that is lived in service. That's the spice of life. That's the salt. And the world needs some salt 
not to add to her already open wounds, but to show a hungry world how to make things just taste a little better. Now, I want you to listen to this next line of the passage from Isaiah 58. After God tells the people what proper worship really looks like, God says, if you do these things, all the things he has just invited us to do in service to others, then your light will shine, will break forth like the dawn. Do these things and your light will break forth like the dawn. And I don't know about you, but I think the world so badly needs our light to break forth. Earlier this week, I pulled up to a stoplight. There were two lanes of traffic, and I was in the middle lane. And in the median to my left, there was a man about my age standing with a cardboard sign asking for money. And my first thought, true confessions here, my first thought was, man, I'm glad I'm not in the lane right next to him. My second thought was a little more compassionate. What in the world is he doing out here? It's 12 degrees. And just then, the man shifted his sign toward me, and I read on the sign, it said, need a little hope. Anything helps. Not need a little help, which is what I thought it would say, but need a little hope. And I thought, well, good grief, Sharla. You can give him a little hope. So I rolled down the window and motioned him over, and I handed him a few dollars, which is all I had in my wallet. And we had a little chat right there in the middle of the street. I told him to put his hood up. It was freezing, and I didn't want him to freeze to death. He told me he was a Marine Corps veteran. We chatted for just a minute. He thanked me. And as he walked away, I saw in my rearview mirror somebody else roll down their window and hand him something. I have no idea if they followed my lead or if they were also nudged as I was. Now I know that I've been around long enough to know there's a lot of schools of thought about giving people on street corners money. Some people I know give them all the time, others I know never give. But in that moment, I just felt a nudge. I can give this person a little hope. Sometimes that's all we can do. You know, when God first called the prophet Isaiah that we just have been talking about, God said, who will go forth to the people on my behalf? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. When Mary heard from the angel Gabriel that she was going to conceive and bear a son named Jesus, she said, here am I, a servant of the Lord. You see, our worshipful response to God's blessing in our lives is to be a blessing to others. It's a mindset that we serve and that we offer kindness as a response to God's love for us. Here I am, Lord. Send me. So often, religion is about coming to a certain sacred place doing sacred acts, and perhaps feeling a little closer to the divine. And I do hope and pray that you feel closer to the divine when you worship. 
But Jesus is reiterating in today's reading that the divine one is out there in the world, all around us. When we serve others on God's behalf, we are multiplying the presence of God in the world. Jesus is telling us in our reading today that our religion is far more than simply being good and following the rules. He is telling us to put some intention behind following the rules. Our love and compassion and care for everyone we encounter should be the heartbeat of our religiosity. Here I am, Lord. Send me. So I've been thinking about this, and I wonder if we as a congregation, and those of you who are visiting, I want you to join in, could embark on a little experiment. It's February, which is the month of hearts. So what if Snowmass Chapel collectively decided to open our hearts wherever we go this month? Just open our hearts a little more. If each of us does so with the express purpose of being salt and light, cooperating with God as instruments of God's, with our hearts and our minds acknowledging that it is for, with, and by God that we are acting, I believe we could make a real difference, a huge impact, in fact. I wonder if each of us could commit to one another and to ourselves that we would do five intentional acts of kindness every day over the coming weeks. This is something that another pastor friend of mine did, and, and it could be as simple as taking someone a meal. It could be visiting with someone who's lonely or elderly, maybe offering an encouraging word or, or a note or an email to someone. It could just be giving somebody the time of day when you want a moment of silence and you wind up on the chairlift with a chatty neighbor who wants to talk. In other words, just walking alongside someone without expecting anything in return. I'm talking about the small stuff here because sometimes we get too worried that we can't feed the hungry or clothe the naked or free the oppressed. So let's start where we can. Maybe all you can do is offer someone a little hope. Now, some of you might have spheres of influence where you could really have a big impact, and if so, go big. Please, we need you to go big. Don't hide your light. But regardless of how big or how small, you will make an impact. Mother Teresa said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. So we have about 120 people or so here, some watching online. If each of us committed to doing just five acts of kindness a day, that would be 600 people affected in our community today by your compassion and your care. 600. If we keep that up through the rest of February, what's left of it, that would be about 12,000 people affected by your compassion and your care. 12,000 people in less than one month. Keep that up for a year, 365 days, we could have over 200,000 acts of care in our communities. And all you have to do is show up and bring the light. Bring your saltiness. Here I am, Lord. 
Ephesians 2 says that what God has made us, we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us to be our way of life. Let the light of God shine through you. Let it be your way of life. Let others see it and be drawn to it, be curious about it. And in turn, may they give glory to God for what you have done. This is our worshipful response to God's love in our lives. It's one way, in fact, I believe it's the only way that we can bring about the kind of world that we want. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray.